This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So we'll start with hypothermia, and this was my place for the last for 20 years up until taking over at San Francisco General here this last July. Uh, this is Denver Health, and we would see a lot of patients both with hypothermia and with high-altitude issues. We were the primary referral center for all of the high-altitude areas, medical centers that were then would send patients down to lower altitude. And so we got, to, we got a chance to see a lot of these patients, and particularly we got to see the impact of the descent. And you'll hear a fairly common message in here. I can tell you that from seeing so many of these patients, it's a real difference. And it can be a dramatic difference in just really a few thousand feet. And so we'll talk some about that. But this was a center I was at for, for 20 years up till this, this last July. So let's talk about it. And we talk about hypothermia, and oftentimes I will combine this with hyperthermia as well, because when we're talking about human thermal regulation, there's some very similar issues when you're too hot or you're too cold. Um, and our thermal regulation is remarkable. We, we can do things uh, that, that really, when you think about it, is, is pretty impressive. I could change the temperature, not intending to, but we could change the temperature in this room 30 degrees, keep you, force you to stay in here for hours on end, and your temperature, your body temperature, would change less than one degree. Now, that's pretty phenomenal when you think about it, right? I mean, we could, we could go 30 degrees up, 30 degrees down, and you're still going to maintain a homeostasis right, right about the same temperature, body temperature, maybe up half a degree or so. And that's a pretty impressive system. And it works very well until it doesn't work. And that's where we can get into some trouble, and that's why some of the cases that we see of hypothermia are related to when our systems aren't working like they should. Just think about it. What is your body temperature right now? Probably about 98 degrees, give or take, right? And yet the room temperature is, what, 70 degrees? Maybe 71? 20 degree difference. And yet you're going to stay perfectly comfortable at about 98 degrees as long as you stay in this room and even beyond. So that's all of these systems working. And what we have is we produce heat and we release heat. And that's how we regulate our temperature. And the way we produce heat is we've got a basic metabolic rate based in the heart, the liver, the brain, uh, those predominantly, other areas of the body as well. And we also have skeletal muscle. And these all produce heat, and thank goodness they do. That's how we maintain our temperature of 98 degrees, give or take. And then there's heat loss. And we really have, there's four mechanisms that we lose heat. There's conduction, where we transfer between objects, uh, air versus water. So this is why if you're out in in the open air at 72 degrees, you feel warm. If you are in 72 degree water, you feel cold. That's basically because 72 degree water is pulling heat from you. And that's often why that the difference that you sense in temperature, even though the temperature itself is the same. Convection, I, I liken this mostly to wind chill. And this is basically where the, the, our wind comes across us and take heat away from the body. There's radiation, we are heat generators. Blood flow, as we are producing that heat, a lot of that heat goes into our blood. Our blood can either go out to the periphery, in other words, the hands, the feet, our, our arms and legs, and lose heat very easily that way, or it can stay centrally and keep our heat close. And the body is constantly regulating this to make sure that we can maintain that temperature, often in this way. And blood flow to the skin will manage our temperature, 
and the function, it's often a function of the temper, temperature gradient as well. So if it's really hot, we're not going, we're going to end up losing heat. If it's cold, we end up, or excuse me, if we're hot, we end up not losing as much heat. If it's really cold, we can lose heat. Temperature gradient can help manage that as well, or potentially put us in, in dire straits. And then evaporation, another cooling mechanism. And radiation and evaporation are the way the body will typically actively cool. And this is often a function of the moisture gradient. So we have the temperature gradient, the moisture gradient, and we're exchanging heat to try to maintain that homeostasis in this way. But this is how when we sweat, we can lose, again, lose heat that we're generating within the body. And so how is it all controlled? Well, there are sensors in the skin that tell us what the temperature is and sensors in our carotid bodies that tell us what our core temperature is. And then it determines the temperature in the skin and centrally and sends messages to the hypothalamus in our brain, which basically tells then what to do in terms of all of these various areas that we generate heat or we lose heat. And we maintain our homeostasis that way. And it works, and it works really well. But now we're going to talk about hypothermia, when either the environment has overcome our ability to adjust to that, or we can't generate heat in the same way that we normally do. And that's a key concept to remember, is that you can become significantly hypothermic, even in a normal temperature or warm environment. And hopefully I'll be able to make my case for this. So let's start with a case. This is a case I saw. 22-year-old woman lying by the side of a school building. Now, this, is, uh, this, is, this was in Colorado, and it just so happened that she'd been lying there for a while. People were going back and forth. Uh, as the morning went on, a number of people passed her. Nobody thought too much of it. Eventually, somebody noticed that she wasn't really moving the way she should, and this didn't look right, so they checked in on her, and sure enough, she had no pulse. So pupils were fixed and dilated, which means they basically they were, they were blown. When we look at the pupils, often we look at brain function underneath is sometimes a component is shown by whether the pupils respond. Her pupils weren't responding at all. Uh, in fact, she didn't have any cardiac activity when the paramedics showed up and put her on a cardiac monitor. She was in asystole, which is basically cardiac standstill. The heart's not moving at all. She was given the normal round of drugs. Uh, in other words, we give usually epinephrine and, in this case, atropine and others to try to get her heart started again. It didn't work and she was pronounced dead there at the scene. Then as the police were starting to get a report, she starts moving. It's usually a bad sign. It's happened a couple of times here, and this is what we're going to talk about. So how does that happen? I mean, how do we have somebody that, you know, here's medical providers that are good at what they do, experts at what they do, and they pronounced her dead, and she's still alive. How did that happen? Okay, so... Baron Jean-Louis, who was Napoleon's chief surgeon, we hear a lot about him in medical history because he has a lot to do with our medical history. He was one of the first to recognize the importance of EMS, emergency medical services, where we would go out and get patients as opposed to wait until they could get to us. Um, but he also was one of the first to describe hypothermia, at least in the written form. Now, there are a lot of people that are attributed to earlier descriptions of this, but, but he was one of the first to really to write about it. And he called it the White Death. And he noticed that in the French retreat from Russia, uh, back during the Napoleonic Wars, that only 350 of the 12,000 men that he was observing survived, uh, or at least that he, was, he ultimately ended up 
assessing. And which do you suppose they were? So there, the way that the, the military works there is that the higher an officer you were, the, the, the better position you got next to the fire. So what they would do is they would march all day and then at night they would set up a fire. And the higher officers would be able to get closer spots to the fire and the lower ranking soldiers would be further away from the fire. Now, who do you suppose, and so it often was a freeze-thaw, and obviously this was, this was Russia in the winter, and I think we've all heard about the, the episodes that he was involved with, extremely cold, and there would be a freeze-thaw, freeze-thaw phenomenon that went on. Who do you suppose did better? So when I first heard that, I said the ones that were close to the fire, because they would be able to maintain their temperature better, and in fact, it was just the opposite. It was the folks that were the furthest away, or at least many of them that were farther away, that were more likely to survive. And why is that? Well, there's, there's a phenomenon out there that we'll talk about for hypothermia, for frostbite, and to a little extent we'll get into it with high altitude, where going back and forth is actually worse than maintaining a temperature as long as you can maintain some sort of ability to survive with that temperature. In other words, Freeze-thaw, freeze-thaw is a bad thing. It's clearly bad for hypothermia, for frostbite, for all of the cold-related injuries. And it's part of the message that you want. If you're really out in the wilderness and you're at a point where you can't warm up, or if you can warm up, you can't stay warm, uh, it may be a consideration to wait until you're in an environment where you can stay warm under certain circumstances. But this, is, this was first really described well by Jean Lurie. And he, he did notice the closest to the fire. He was also responsible for some misconceptions, like you rub snow on frostbite. You don't do that. So he wasn't perfect by any means. But he did, uh, he did have a good description of this and probably was one of the earlier to recognize that. So let's define hypothermia. What is cold? Uh, so any core temperature less than 35 degrees is going, we'll, we'll define as hypothermia. And that's pretty consistent across, if you read articles about hypothermia, cold-related issues, 35 degrees is what we use, or 95 degrees Celsius. So I'm going to break it down into mild, 32 to 35 degrees, moderate, it's going to be when we get down to 28 degrees or, or 82 degrees Fahrenheit, and then severe is less than 28 degrees. And the reason that we break this down is because there really are going to be different approaches depending on the temperature that, that you're at. And although we can't always we don't always have a thermometer. We can't always determine what the temperature is. We can get a sense for, in some ways, we know that if they're shivering, they're still likely above 30 degrees and actually likely above 32 degrees. So that will help us a little bit. And then we know what, how we're going to manage our patients that are cold when we are above 32 degrees versus when we're starting to get colder than that. So this is how we're going to define hypothermia. In terms of an incidence, there's probably somewhere around, if you take the reported deaths, about 700 deaths annually from hypothermia. Uh, current records, at least as of checked last week, were, and these were patients that survived to neurologically intact. In other words, they survived to be able to function again relatively normally. And the lowest core temperature was 13.7 degrees Celsius, or 56 degrees, required over two hours of CPR, and was on bypass for over a almost 180 minutes, almost three hours, and survived neurologically intact. There was another record, it wasn't quite this, 61 degrees, that was actually a family physician. And I heard her speak at a conference once. It was really phenomenal to listen to this because she described very clearly the process of going into essentially death 
by hypothermia. She was out uh, cross-country skiing in northern Minnesota and got lost and basically wasn't found for about eight hours and was found in cardiac arrest and, and was able to really describe a phenomenal process, some of which I've incorporated here. That was not this. She didn't quite hit the record, but she came pretty close. She underwent over an hour of CPR and survived and is practicing in family practice still to this day. So it's pretty remarkable stories of survival from severe hypothermia. And the longest time submerged, again, this is, this is in terms of recorded in the scientific literature, is 40 minutes underwater that survived to be neurologically intact. And this was cold water, and there is certainly some discussion about the difference between if, if you're going to drown, and I hope that never happens to anybody here, but you certainly would want colder water if that's going to happen. It gives you a chance for longer survival, uh, at least according to the science that we know now. Okay, so who's at risk? Well, you can start with, when, when we talk in medicine about who's at risk, you can start with the elderly and children almost every time. Uh, and there, there are certainly reasons for this. Now, I'm, my, uh, my kids are 16, 14, and 10, I, so I have two teenagers, and I want to put teenagers in, they're at risk for everything because of the way their minds work. So I would like to put them in there. <laughs> Science doesn't back me up yet, but I think it will eventually. But right now, it's children, the elderly, homeless, the mentally ill, and as we know, there's unfortunately a far too, uh, far too significant overlap uh, in those two populations. Anybody with impaired thermal regulation, so alcohol, drugs, burns, sepsis, sepsis and infectious issues that can't do the regulation that we talked about. So when those systems that we talked about shut down and are no longer able to do that phenomenal balance of temperature, then we're at risk. And medications that patients are on, can sometimes or their prescription medications and even occasionally non-prescription, but particularly things like a medication class called phenothiazines, barbiturates, certain types of medications can put us at risk for hypothermia as well. Now, I made this point earlier, but anybody who cannot produce heat is going to be at risk for hypothermia. And in fact, there was a really nice study that was published in JAMA, which is the Journal of the Association or American Medical Association. It's one of our most prominent journals that looked at almost 500 victims of hypothermia and how they were managed. And guess what? 69 of them came from Florida, where you would not imagine hypothermia would be. But it emphasized the point that you can get cold in a warm environment. And Endocrine disorders can certainly put you at risk. Some of the medications that we talked about. Hypoglycemia, so if your glucose gets really low, you are no longer able to generate the energy that it takes to generate heat. And that would put you at risk for hypothermia. Malnutrition can do that as well, which is, makes sense if you look at, again, our thermal regulation depends on good nutrition, reasonable levels of glucose, those types of things to work and create heat. So it can happen indoors in a warm environment as we described. And so you want to be a little careful about just being worried about hypothermia in very cold environments, although certainly that's going to be the, the more common time we run into that. But if we stopped our thermal regulation right now, we would all be cold by the end of this talk, and certainly probably even sooner than that. And that's what it takes to generate the heat that, we're, that our normal bodies are used to. Okay, so the other re risks for hypothermia are increased heat loss, and we are big, 
we are very guilty of this, we in medicine. You know, what do we do with our trauma patients? They come in with a big, bad car accident, and they've rolled over a number of times. We throw them in the back of the ambulance, we whip them into the emergency department, and we take all their clothes off, and then we fill them with IV fluids. And so, what are we doing? IV fluids are what? They've been sitting at room temperature, they're 72 degrees. So they feel perfectly warm, but in fact, when compared to your body temperature, they're very cold. And so we just filled your body up with cold fluids, even though they didn't feel that cold. And we took your clothes off, so you no longer have the ability to man maintain your own heat as well. And we've rendered you cold. And it can happen fairly quickly. Cold IV infusions, we talked about overcooling. We've done that for patients as well. And again, some of the medications that we use can re render our patients at risk as well. So who else is at risk? Anybody ever heard of this? This is the, the, the 300 degree club. Judy, have you heard of this? No. This is, this is a great, this is a phenomenal idea. And it's gonna get to, to a message that I have later about decision making and. <laughs> um, so this is a club where, and, it, and it, it's generally been in the South Pole, though I know that they've, they've opened a branch in the North Pole. And when the temperature gets to be 100 <laughs> below, they will, have a sauna box out there and they can put kind of, they have isolated sauna boxes and they'll put it up to 200 degrees. So you get where they're going, right? 200 degrees above, 100 degrees below, and they join, you join the 300 degree club by jumping into this box at 200 degrees. You stay in as long as you possibly can. It's gotta stay in at least two minutes. And then you jump out into 100 degree below weather with no clothes on. You can wear a, you can wear shoes and you can wear goggles, that's it. Um, and if you can do that and then maintain out in the 100 degree below for more than two minutes, you get to join the 300 degree club. So this is a risky group as well. And this would be somebody that would be fall into the at-risk category for hyper and hypothermia all in the same five minute period. Okay, so we'll talk about decision making a little bit. Um, let's talk about the pathophysiology. What happens to the body when we get cold? And it actually is a very predictable and sensible response to what's happening, what, what's happening to the surroundings. So as with, so, as with virtually everything in medicine, the body is much smarter than we ever, ever will be, I believe. And, and it detects that something's wrong much earlier than we do and starts to address that, starts to adjust to it. And so one of the things we can do to help recognize hypothermia as we look at what the body is doing so that we can recognize it's responding to something and it's responding to a dangerous situation that it is sensing is happening. So from the heart standpoint, you'll see an initial tachycardia, so the heart rate goes up a little bit initially, but then there's a progressive bradycardia that happens, so it starts to slow down, and it's a pretty predictable response that in a normal heart, it will decrease about 50% of its normal resting heart rate by the time you hit that 28 degree point, which is one of the reasons that we put 28 degrees as being below that is where you are in severe hypothermia. And so there's that progressive bradycardia to the point where is if we have somebody that's that cold and they're not bradycardic or they're not as bradycardic as they should be, we need to be thinking about something else too. So are there, is their glucose too low? Are they hypovolemic? Is there a drug injection? Something like that that also is going along. This is how consistent the body's response to hypothermia is, particularly when you get that low. And it's the basis for the decreased heart rate is it's decreased spontaneous depolarization of pacemaker cells. And for, for people that doesn't make any sense to, basically our heart automatically beats and it beats because we have pacemaker cells in the heart that are, are initiate their beat by spontaneous depolarization. And 
when you reduce that, the heart can't generate the same beat and it will ultimately go into asystole. But the reason I make that point is because when you see low heart rate and low blood pressure, which these patients will have as well, we often reach for a medication called atropine. Because this is the reason that the heart is slow, atropine's not going to work. So leave that in the box. And it's one of the messages we come out when we're starting to treat this is, first of all, medications don't work. I'm not entirely convinced that they work in cardiac arrest anyway, but we'll talk about That's a separate story. Uh, they certainly don't work in hypothermia. And so you can try one set. That's fine. You're not going to probably do any harm with this, but you are going to do harm if you keep getting a medication that doesn't work. It comes back to, again, one of the age-old lessons that we taught, our parents taught us when we were young, is if you're trying something that's not working, continuing to try the same thing doesn't make any sense and may actually get you in trouble. And this is a perfect example of that. So keeping giving, giving medication over and over again for something that's not working is not going to help, and eventually you're going to build up a whole bunch that can cause problems down the road. These are what we call Osborne waves. And they were first described back in 1938, um, and they're basically... QRS and ST segment elevation. So those are, what you're looking at there is a, is a monitor strip, and it's the, the big spike up there is the QRS and the wave, and basically there's a ST segment elevation that happens in response to hypothermia. It potentially helps us make the diagnosis, although it really doesn't because there are other things that can do this, but it certainly doesn't help us decide how this patient is going to do. It's not prognostic in that, in that sense. You often don't see those until you get less than 32 degrees Celsius. So again, now we're talking about some things where we may not have a thermometer. If we have a monitor, we can sometimes tell about where we are if we see something like this. So again, if they're shivering, they're probably above 32 degrees. So we can start to use some of the other tools that we might have to, make a, to, to get a sense of where we are. And in the end, I'm going to make the argument, it doesn't matter what the number is, it matters what the number does like so many other things that we are, we are dealing with. So we are more worried about the impact of the temperature rather than the absolute number of the temperature. But this is something that, again, people have looked for. And it's helpful and it's kind of cool. It's a great teaching opportunity. When we see this in the emergency department, we can bring out that EKG and show everybody and say, this is what you see with hypothermia. But in point of fact, it doesn't help a whole lot because there are other things that can do it. And it doesn't really tell us what the prognosis is going to be. That's going to depend on what we do. The other issue is we have to recognize that that ST segment elevation can also recognize or represent a heart attack. And we have sometimes given, gone down a road of a heart attack when, in fact, the answer has been hypothermia and vice versa. So recognize that they can look the same and know that the clinical setting, what we're dealing with, should direct what we, what we do with these particular findings. All right. The other thing that happens, so we talked about what happens to heart. Now what happens to the lung, the respiratory status? There's, again, that little stimulation at first, and then there's depressing of the respiratory drive, and this will get at when we start talking about treatment and where we get into trouble. There's a respiratory depressant here as part of hypothermia. In renal, in terms of the kidneys, it causes a cold diuresis. And some of you have kind of experienced this probably when you've been cold, is it, we, we have a tendency to need to pee more. The problem is it's a, it's a very dilute urine that is clearing out our fluid, the fluid that we have, but not the waste that the urine is meant to get rid of. So this is one of the reasons that patients that are significantly hypothermic are, by definition, in some ways, dehydrated. 
And part of the treatment is going to be certainly to rehydrate them. And then on the central nervous system, CNS, it's a well-known central nervous system depressant. So we're going to see, as particularly as we get below 28 degrees, there's going to be a lower level of consciousness, and you can start to see altered mental status. And again, that will help us a little bit clinically as to what direction we're going. When they start to become altered, you're entering the zone of dangerous hypothermia. This is also the argument for when we get into really cold water, what happens, how do we die in cold water? It's usually drowning, not from hypothermia because it affects our mental status and we get to the point where we can no longer maintain our breathing reflex in the same way and we drown as opposed to truly get to the point where we're significantly hypothermic. So you, and along with the cardiac impacts of a dysrhythmia that can go when you get immediately into cold water, when you see people go into cold water and go down pretty quickly, that's not from being too cold. That's from either a dysrhythmia, a heart rhythm problem, or they've reached a point where they're altered and they don't know to react the way they're supposed to act. Okay, so a couple of terms I want to address. There's this core temperature after drop, which does happen. We've seen it happen. I've watched it happen so many times. And it basically is a further decline after you've started to warm the patient. So what's really frustrating is we'll put in sometimes in the emergency department, we'll put in a core thermometer and we'll measure your core temperature and as we're starting to do all the things we're supposed to do to warm you up your temperature is still going down and so people start to panic say we're doing the wrong things we're not doing enough and we got to do something more aggressive but you have to understand this is what's happening and it actually makes sense when you think of what's happening there and when I talked last about blood and when it goes to the skin and to what we're sensing and what we warm up those types of things when blood goes to the skin it will release and we'll lose that heat. And the first thing you do when you warm up, I, we often warm up the, the periphery, the arms, the legs, the chest. So it dilates the vessels. The blood comes out to those dilated vessels and we lose that heat. So in fact, as we start the right process, we might not, we not, not only be losing heat, but we're taking blood away from the core area that's still gonna be cold. And that's okay, we just need to know what's happening. It doesn't really change what we're doing. We're still gonna warm them up, but we have to understand that's happening. And in fact, it's probably not hurting the patient at all. If it goes, for, goes extensively, there's some arguments that it might, but it's probably not actually harming. We're doing the right thing in warming the patient up. And then there's rewarming shock, which again makes a lot of sense because as we warm the body, the vessels dilate, and as the vessels dilate, the blood pressure goes down. And so you'll get some fairly significant hypotension at the same time. And we just need to know this is happening. So another reason why we concentrate on sometimes warming the core and not so much the arms. I have actually have some good pictures of patients that were, were warming with big bear huggers over the chest, abdomen, and, and body, and we have the arms and legs out in the, in the open air because we don't want to warm that area up as quickly. But it's to address some of these issues, although again, the clinical implications probably aren't as significant. Okay, so this is one of the, one of the important measures I want to take you, I want, I want to help convince you of when we recognize and deal with hypothermia. How we feel is, may not have much to do with our core temperature. And I'm gonna tell you about a, an experiment that was done here in San Francisco that highlighted this more than anything I, that, that I have been able to, to encounter. But in fact, there's a very well-described, and, and you've heard about it, the patients that have died of hypothermia, say, climbing Mount Everest, and then at the, right before they die, they're taking their clothes off, right? 
What's going on there? What's with that, that paradoxical undressing? And essentially what's happening is the body is sensing we're getting cold and we need to maintain that heat in the core. It constricts our vessels and it can do a pretty impressive job of doing that to the point where we are so constricted that most, if not virtually all of our blood is in our core trying to keep us warm. But to constrict our vessels like that takes energy. And when we are about to die from hypothermia, we reach a point where we no longer have the energy to constrict the vessels. And so those vessels, and a lot of this is what we think is happening, but it's pretty good evidence that, in fact, this does happen, where the vessels dilate. Now, what the last little bit of warm blood from your core comes out to those dilated vessels, and you actually feel warm right before you die of hypothermia. And so how we feel is not necessarily related to what our core temperature is. And that, that makes some sense, too, because how we feel is related to a lot of the receptors in our skin, not based on our core temperature, which our carotid, body is, the carotid bodies are sensing, but we don't sense as much. Now, I'm going to make an, an argument for this when it comes to high altitude as well. So alcohol is a wonderful thing in many ways, but not for hypothermia and not for high altitude. And so when it, now we're going to get back to that decision-making part of things again. Um, and here's the paradox is that what happens when we drink alcohol? We feel warm. Why? Because it vasodilates. It dilates those vessels so we feel warm. A lot of that warm blood is at our periphery, near those sensors that we're feeling, and we're feeling warm when, in fact, we're losing heat faster than we ever have. So alcohol puts us at much higher risk for hypothermia, even though we feel warm. And the best study that I know that has shown this was done back in the 1970s. It was done on Coast Guard volunteers right here on San Francisco beaches. And it was back when we could do studies like this. So uh, we, got, we, got, we got about several hundred Coast Guard volunteers that would come out, and they all, <laughs> they all had rectal probes put in to, to measure their core temperature. And they went out into the ocean, and were out there for an hour. Okay, the ocean in the winter in San Francisco, pretty cold, right? And they, come, they came out of the ocean, and they were interviewed as they were coming to the hot tubs that they had set out there. And they interviewed them and said, so how do you feel right now? And you can imagine how they felt. They were miserable, right? Absolutely miserable. They were cold out in this cold water for an hour, and they, they were miserable. So we, we, I wasn't part of this. This is the 1970s. We, the medical community, put them in hot tubs, and we kept measuring their core temperature. And about 10 to 15 minutes later, we asked them again, how do you feel now? And they felt, they feel great. Uniformly, they all felt much better. What do you suppose their core temperature was? It's actually lower than it was when they got out of the water. And because of those phenomena that we talked about, right? But it just really goes to show how, what, how we feel is not necessarily what our core temperature is doing. And we need to be aware of that both for ourselves and certainly when we are managing patients like this. So recognizing that, we're not going to necessarily go how patients feel. And we're going to recognize also that this also makes sense why alcohol can be a bad thing when it comes to hypothermia. So in terms of heart rhythms, all heart rhythms, all the bad heart rhythms are more common when you are cold. Certainly atrial dysrhythmia is the most common cause of atria. And, and, and again, for I, I won't get too much into the heart, but we have the atria and the ventricles. And the atrial dys, dysrhythmias predominantly are atrial fibrillation and atrial flutter. 
Those are both more common in hypothermia, and most will convert spontaneously when you warm the patient up. And so the, the pushes don't spend a lot of time worrying about what the rhythm is because the rhythm is responding to temperature. You need to fix the underlying problem. And the underlying problem is the temperature. So asystole is also not much, not necessarily more ominous in a hypothermic situation. So cardiac standstill. When I see a patient that has come in in cardiac arrest and I see asystole, I often have a concerned about a worse prognosis than somebody who stays in ventricular fibrillation because I can fix that. I can defibrillate them and change that into a regular rhythm. In hypothermia, I can't do that. And because ventricular fibrillation requires more energy than asystole, there may not be necessarily a worse prognosis for asystole, which gets back to our initial case. Remember our 22-year-old? It's going to play a role in that as well. And ventricular fibrillation is very tough to get out of. It's requiring a little bit of energy, but it's tough to get out of until we warm the patient up. And again, ACLS drugs, we talked about this a little bit. I would just say, if you want to give one round of this, if you're in a position of treating this patient, that's fine. But don't continue to give more of the medication, particularly when it is not working. Because there's a good reason why it's not working. In terms of the ventricular dysrhythmias, um, lidocaine doesn't work. That's what we have gone to traditionally until we had amiodarone. Amiodarone doesn't work either. Rutilium for a long time was our drug of choice until we found out that it may work in animals. So if you're ever dealing with an animal that's hypothermic, you can reach for the rutilium. But it doesn't probably work in human beings. Or if it does, we certainly haven't gotten the good science to show it. Procainamide actually may be harmful in hypothermic situations with increased rate of ventricular fibrillation out of VTAC. And then, again, amiodarone really hasn't been well studied, but what we do know is that it's not particularly effective in hypothermia. Back to the whole idea of maybe no medications are effective in significant hypothermia. Uh, transvenous pacing is a problem, and oftentimes to do a transvenous pacer, we have to go in and have a wire that's right in the heart, and that's a bad issue because a very cold heart is at risk to go into very bad rhythms, particularly when stimulated like that. So we really don't want to put a transvenous pacer in. And if you have to try to transcutaneous pacing, you can do it, but it's, but it's not going to pick up very well in a hypothermic patient either. So what do you say? Basically what I'm saying is none of this stuff works very well. So what are you going to do? You're going to warm the patient. So how are we going to do that? All right, so in general, yes, we do want to handle gently. You know, I, I've seen a lot of patients come in with hypothermia of a variety of temperatures. And I've seen a lot of things end up happening to them, some of which, not intentionally, ended up being rough handling paramedics. You know, drop them off on a board. Uh, nurses or physicians will move them around a lot. And, and so I, it's been hard for me to, although I buy the concept of gentle handling, um, I haven't seen, I've seen a, a lot of patients that I would have expected to go into bad rhythms. And we haven't seen that necessarily. But I think it's still a good concept to handle them gently. And an irritable myocardium, irritable heart probably isn't the one you want to handle roughly. So I get that, and I think that probably makes some sense. You want to get them out of their cold and wet clothing. I think that makes a lot of sense as well. Cardiac monitoring makes some sense in these patients because they can go into a significant problem rhythm spontaneously. And then peripheral IVs, because central IVs, again, risk irritating that heart. So we want to get access because we want to give them fluids. As we talked about, they're going to be dehydrated, and part of that treatment is going to be to give them IV fluids. Now, when I trained, we had IO lines, which are intraosseous lines, that were really awful. 
they were, we, we used them in kids far too commonly. They never really worked very well. When they did work, it was for very short periods of time. We now have, in the last really five to ten years, developed a whole new world when it comes to interosseous lines. And so these are now very viable possibilities. And when you think about it, these are patients that are going to be hard to get IVs in, right? I mean, they're very constricted, and they're, they're going to be hard to get peripheral IVs on. So IO lines, interosseous lines, are very reasonable things to use here, and they're very easy to do. And many paramedics... EMS systems have them as well. So they might be something, and particularly in a wilderness kit, we'll sometimes have these. So it's something to consider for IV access as well. And a treatment, we talk about intubation. So should we intubate these patients? And the answer is maybe, and we'll talk about why. So intubation, again, we're talking about putting a breathing tube in and, and ventilating, breathing for this patient. And many of them are, it's a respiratory depressant. But on the other hand, that may be okay. Because remember, it's a depressant of everything. It's a depressant of cardiac activity. It's a depressant of anything that's requiring energy. So should we, should we intubate them? And the answer is, if we need to, go ahead and do it. We worried for a long time is, are we going to irritate them enough to send them into a bad rhythm or make them worse? And the answer is no. If you need to, breathe for them. Breathe for them. Um, airway protection and oxygenation is not only safe, but it can be very effective. Um, they did not induce dysrhythmias in this study. Uh, and, and in fact, oxygenation is a significant part of helping patients along with fluid reversing dehydration. It's a significant part of making these patients better. So we're going to oxygenate them, and if we need to, if we truly need to do it, then we need to intubate them. I would argue we don't need to intubate, and in a lot of settings where you might be out in a situation where you can't do that, or don't have the skill set to do it, or just don't have the equipment, that's okay, and it's not, actually may not be harmful for the patient because there are other areas that we can help them with. So we're going to volume resuscitate them where we can. We've talked about IV access if you can get it, IO access if you can. If you don't have access to any of that, you'll do what you can, but these are areas where we can potentially help them. Rapid volume expansion can certainly be beneficial in severely hypothermic patients. And although the slower heart makes you a little worried about volume overload, we can certainly start with 500 cc's and usually about half a liter. And I will often be very comfortable into, into two liters or more with these patients. They are, by definition, clinically dehydrated. You want to avoid lactated ringers if you have that option because the very cold uh, liver doesn't metabolize lactate very well. So how are we going to rewarm them? And I'm going, to, I'm going to introduce a little bit of a different concept here because for many, many years we talked about we've got to rewarm them, we've got to rewarm them fast. And I think we have a lot of science on this now, and I think the science is really telling us that when the heart stops, you probably should rewarm them as fast as you can. But until that happens, everything that the body is doing is actually exactly what makes sense. And so in many cases... We don't have to rush to warm them. We certainly have to get them out of the cold environment and get them into an environment where they can either warm themselves, certainly above 32 degrees, or we can help them warm. But the rush may not be there truly until the heart stops. And so that's a little bit of a different concept because there's a little bit of a sense often that we've got to do this as quickly as we can. And you can run into problems if you do it too quickly. And I think the science is really telling us that there isn't a rush to it. Once you've taken them out of the cold environment and have reversed the process of them getting colder, 
Now we do want to warm them up, but we don't necessarily need to rush to do that. So again, when we talk about rewarming techniques, I want to make the argument that there isn't one magic answer to this. You'll hear a lot about different ways to do it, and I'll talk about many of them briefly. But please know there's no one magic answer to this with maybe one exception, and that is cardiopulmonary bypass, cardiac bypass for cardiac arrest patients that are salvageable. That is probably the answer when the heart is stopped. But short of that, there's a lot of ways to rewarm them. None of them have been clearly established as better than others. So rigid protocols, you must do this under all circumstances, don't make sense. And again, you may be in situations where you might have resources to some, or for some issues and not others, but that's okay. We don't necessarily have one way to rewarm them. In fact, there are many ways to rewarm them. So there's a passive way of rewarming them. That's basically stopping them from getting colder, getting them out of the cold environment, and letting them rewarm themselves. And for anybody who's still shivering, this is absolutely the answer. Get them out of the cold environment, get them out of their wet, cold clothes, and let them warm themselves up. And they'll do it, and they'll do it very effectively in, in the right time for them. Covering the patient with some sort of insulin material is ideal, obviously. It maintains the peripheral vasoconstriction that we talked about. You don't see rewarming shock, although I don't worry about that too much anyway. And you don't exacerbate an acidosis, which you can do an underlying acidosis in the body if you do this too quickly. And if we warm them up too quickly, there are some downsides to this. And it has a rewarming rate of probably somewhere in between half a degree and two degrees Celsius an hour. Now there's, for the active rewarming, now we're at a point where we're gonna actively do something to warm these patients up. There's external, internal, or external and internal ways to do this. And I would argue the indications are if the patient's truly unstable, so although the definition of unstable in a hypothermic patient is very different. They're, by definition, their heart rate is slow and their blood pressure is low and that's okay. So cardiovascular instability is basically at a point where it's not able to maintain life, almost cardiac arrest, that we really need to get this, get, start acting quickly. Inadequate rate or failure to rewarm, and again, realize that we may not need to be in as much a hurry as we thought. If, you, if the endocrinology, or if, there, if it's an endocrine problem that's causing really the inability to create heat, then you're going to need to do something here because, once again, it doesn't do any good to let a patient warm themselves if they can't warm themselves. Now, that's a minority of cases, but if that does come up, something that's certainly to address. And then traumatic or toxicology, to so take certain drugs that, again, vasodilate and something that would need to reverse, that would be another indication to more actively warm these patients. Moderate or severe is a relative indication for active rewarming. When they're not able to generate shivering, warm themselves at a reasonable rate. All right, so what are the things we can do to actively externally rewarm? Well, we can immerse people. I don't know if you've ever done this. You can put them in a, in a, uh, in a, in a hot tub, basically. It's what we did with the, we did with the Coast Guard volunteers. Um, and it works. And it does, I mean, it, it warms up perfectly. They feel better sooner. Um, and military has got some good experience with this. And so if you've got a, if you have access to a hot tub and you don't mind managing patients in hot tubs, some of them, that work great. As long as, again, you can maintain that warmth, that will work. Plumbed garments, so things like it. You've got, I've got a patient here that, uh, that I took care of in Denver where we've got this big one called Bear Hugger, and there, there are other garments that can help warm the patient externally. 
Hot water bottles have worked. There's other radiant sources that you can also see. I think I've got a... So this, these are heat lamps. And those work pretty well. Again, kind of warm the environment around the patient. Warm blankets, forced heat air. That's what this is. It's kind of a bear hugger that forces warmed air through them. Those can certainly be very effective. And then we're going to get into core rewarming ways. So airway rewarming is a great way to rewarm patients. Now, you do want to warm that air that's going in. You can do that a variety of ways. It's indicated in most cases it's inexpensive, it's easy to do, and it's really no downside to it as long as you do it carefully. It's non-invasive, low cost, and ensures the adequate oxygenation that we talked about. So oxygenation is important for these patients as well. Should be probably humidified air if you can, and a low thermal conductivity of dry air makes it a little less, ex less effective as a heater. And you do want to be a little bit careful because the, the temperature needs to be pretty clear at 42 to 45 degrees. You get much warmer than that, you're going to start burning the airway, and that's obviously not a good thing. Um, and you get much colder than that, you're not going to be very effective. So you really want to try to get it within that temperature. And I realize that that's not always going to be available in all environments. So the ACR is for active core rewarming, and there's also heated irrigation. So there's a lot of ways to do this. And this is basically taking warm water and trying to warm the core with warm saline. And so you can do gastric. So you can put an NG tube down, a, a tube that will go through my nose, down into stomach, and put a bunch of warm water in there. And that's one way to warm the core up. You can do esophageal, where you basically try to warm the esophagus up. You can do colonic, do warm water enemas. Thoracic, where we will do chest tubes, or even, in some cases, do a thoracotomy, where we open up the chest and warm fluids pushed over the heart and the, the core body at that point. And a lot of this is pretty dramatic, and it can warm bodies up. But the issue is often it's probably not much more effective than some of the less invasive ways that we are doing it. Until you get to the point where you really need to do it quickly, when the heart has stopped and we need to quickly warm these patients up, and then again, that's bypass. That's when we go in and really take your, your blood volume out, warm it, and put it back in. Heat transfer is minimal in some of these ways due to low body surface area that's actually getting the exchange, so you need to be careful about that. And then it should reserve for those that are not responding to the other things that we've talked about already, which are going to respond, most patients are going to respond pretty well as long as we're not in a hurry. And I would argue we don't have to be in a hurry in most of these cases. Mediastinal irrigation through a thoracotomy has been described, but hasn't really been all that successful. Perineal dialysis works. And again, it's a way to kind of get into the perineum and warm them. And you did, uh, uh, basically delivers a heated diacylate into the perineum. Uh, you can infuse two liters, and then you've got to take it out in about 20 minutes because it'll, it'll cool down and put, put some more in. Um, and it can be used in patients that are not perfusing, so that, what, that helps as well. It also warms the, the liver up, which is a significant organ that's creating heat, so generating heat. So that will work. And it'll, it'll warm about 1 to 3 degrees an hour, but there are also complications related to this that you can imagine. This is a, 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 one of the descriptions of an endovascular warming device that actually we had used in Colorado over the last several years. It looks like this, and it basically you go in through the femoral vessel in the groin, and you deliver warmed fluids through that. And we had been doing something similar to this in the past, where we'd go in either an artery 
in the groin or a vein in the groin and deliver warm fluids through that. And it's a way to get a core temperature warm as well. These are called, the, and then there's extracorporeal ways of doing it, cardiopulmonary bypass. We're basically taking the blood out of the body, warming it, and putting it back in. And by, bypass is the best way to do it. Uh, there's atrovenous, which is basically you put a, put a catheter in that goes, takes blood out through the artery, puts it back into the vein that's warmed now. You can do a venovenous, which is basically out and in through, through a vein, and hemodialysis as well. You can take it out and dialyze patients, as we talked about, warming them at the time and put the blood back in. So these are effective. I would say that the best studied and most effective if you're really in cardiac arrest is cardiopulmonary bypass. And those cases that we talked about, those extreme cases that survived, are almost uniformly ones that ultimately went cardiopulmonary bypass, where basically we took their blood volume out, we warmed it, we put it back in. And it can elevate the temperature one to two degrees every three to five minutes. Now, this, is, this can cause problems down the road, but if you're in cardiac arrest, I would argue that those problems are the ones we want to deal with because the other, the other alternative is to be dead. So this is when we're going to do it very quickly. We're going to do it as, as quickly as we can, and this is probably the best studied best way to do it is to do by cardiopulmonary bypass. It does preserve flow when we've lost it by no cardiac activity. And again, these have been the, most of these heroic saves have been related to that. These are some of the other ways to do it. Again, we're not doing as much of this anymore. Um, that, that earlier machine that I showed you for, uh, it, it's been probably as effective as any of getting warm fluids into the body. So we're not doing as much of these types of warming, although you will hear about this. And we did this for many, many years, probably somewhat effectively, although not as well studied. Uh, and then hemodialysis, again, as we talked about. So things to remember about this, rapid rewarming, as we talked about, is not necessarily the best way to go until you reach true significant hypothermia, severe hypothermia, and I would argue cardiac arrest. Complications of rapid rewarming include DIC, which is a bad coagulation problem, disseminated coagulopathy, pulmonary edema, hemolysis, lots of complications related to warming patients up quickly. And then and so I, I want to leave with a message, and I'm a little more aggressive than some. There are some that are not as comfortable saying, oh, I don't want to wait till cardiac arrest. If they're really sick, I still want to do something more aggressive. And I can't tell, the, I can't tell you that's wrong, but I will say that many of the ways that we warm slowly are very effective in patients, and if they're maintaining any degree of circulation, it's probably the best way to go is to warm them slowly and allow them to warm at a temperature that, is, that makes sense for them. And we can help them certainly in that process, but all these really aggressive measures in patients that aren't in critical condition are, may cause as much harm or more harm than good. Okay, so in terms of outcome, have you heard this statement, right? No one is dead until they're, they're warm and dead, right? No. And, then, and the reason I'm gonna say no is I'll give you the perfect example of this. So it is true that it is hard to pronounce somebody dead, and that 22-year-old was a perfect example of it. There's a lots of ways they can look dead, and you can't use those to determine death. And so this 22-year-old, yes, she walked out of the hospital. And I'll summarize this uh, with the final slide. But it was a phenomenal save, and we've got good examples of that. So you need to be very careful about pronouncing somebody dead just simply based on some of the things we use otherwise to pronounce people dead. So their heart is stopped, their eyes are, their pupils are blown, those types of things. You've got to be careful in a hypothermic patient. But that doesn't mean, because they're, they're right, 
they're not dead until they're warm and dead, unless they're really dead. So some patients are cold and dead. The type and severity of underlying disease probably is a determinant of it. So what their baseline status was certainly may help. Now, age alone is not, but underlying disease probably is. Uh, GCS is totally unreliable. So these GCS is Glasgow Coma Scale that we use, and it's three means there's zero response at all. Doesn't help us at all for hypothermia for all the reasons we talked about. Is they may not be responsive because they're cold, and their body is actually trying to save energy to do this. And hypothermia scores being studied, we haven't got a great hypothermia score yet. So we don't have good ways of pronouncing people dead. There's a few. Significant predictors of outcome are bad, really underlying disease, significant underlying disease. Pre-hospital cardiac arrest is a bad <coughs> prognostic factor. The need for endotracheal intubation, for, for obvious reasons. A, a very elevated BUN. These are things that can, that can help guide you in some ways. The grave prognostic factors where I'm ready to stop is when you've got frozen or clotted. When you go to draw blood and it's frozen or clotted, at that point, I'm ready to stop. And if you, you measure potassium over 10, and there's been some debate about this, but certainly some agreement in the literature that when you, if you measure potassium, it's over 10. Those are generally patients that are not salvageable. pH of less than 6.5 is a little more debatable because there have been some recoveries from that. But these are some of the ways we can assess patients in terms of what's reasonable to not go through all that, the warming up process. So in summary, simultaneous sequential combined variety of warming techniques makes sense. And what the situation you're in might have different ways of warming patients, and that's okay. There isn't one way to warm a patient. How fast we warm them up will depend on how sick they are. Rigid treatment protocols don't make a lot of sense. And again, yes, how, how sick they are will determine how fast we're going to warm them up. If they're doing well, let them warm up slowly. So this patient was transported to us, ultimately, after it was transferred from, from a, a close hospital where she had started. Initial rectal temperature was 72 degrees, 22 degrees Celsius. Uh, they were, she was intubated, humidified O2, bear hugger, warmed IV fluids, a bladder irrigation, CPR for over five hours and 40 minutes. Finally got return of spontaneous circulation and was admitted to the ICU, extubated on day five. Uh, it means the tube was taken out and, uh, and she was no longer, no longer breathing for her. And she was discharged to a psychiatric facility because they were worried about a flat affect. And I would say the fact that she was dead for a fair significant amount of time would, would give her full reason to have a flat affect, and I'm not sure that we had to worry about that a whole lot. So this was a phenomenal case. Now, this was a very healthy individual that was found in a very severe hypothermic state, and that hypothermic state probably saved her because she was in cardiac arrest for a period of time, longer than most people survive, could ever survive from that, and the hypothermia was probably, in that sense, protective. And we are learning about that, and a lot of, a lot of where medicine has gone is to make, make patients cold, some for this phenomenon, because the body can then concentrate on other things when it's not worrying about generating heat and warming the body up. So I want to finish up very quickly with some cold-related injuries. Talk about mostly I'm going to just concentrate on frost nip, frostbite, and trench foot and get rid of a couple of the myths. So frostbite is when ice crystals form in the endothelial, and there's endothelial leakage form in the extremities. Typically, it's the exposed part. So right, it's fingers, it's toes, it's nose, that type of thing. And blister formation will occur because of vascular injury in response to frostbite. Uh, so you, we have degrees. First degree can look a little bit almost like a sunburn. You can get progress to the second degree, real kind of almost necrosis 
in third degree, and then there actually is fourth degree. This is a fairly famous case that people have talked about on Everest that was uh, a truly white response to, to uh, frostbite. The treatment is rewarming. It's a rewarming bath. Now, this is tricky because as we warm, it's going to hurt. So we want to ideally give them something for pain if we can. Um, and we also want to rewarm, as we talked about before, we want to rewarm an environment that we can keep them warm. It's very dangerous to rewarm them and have them get cold again. So if you're really out in the wilderness at a point where you can't maintain them in a warm environment, then you might want to consider delaying warming them up. And it gets back to that phenomenon of freeze cold or freeze warm, freeze warm is clearly not very well tolerated. Pain control is going to be important. Ibuprofen actually helps reduce some of the pathologic process, so it would be part of it along with narcotics. Um, I had an interesting case uh, back to our decision-making uh, issues. We had a guy who went out on a, on a weekend warrior, played rugby, doesn't usually uh, play rugby, but decided he was going to do this all day, got home, was really sore, decided first he was going to drink a whole bunch of beer. When that didn't work, he decided he was going to ice his legs, and the idea was the way he was going to ice his legs is he was going to stick them in a... Uh, in a, in a big trash can full of ice. And it made perfect sense until he had just one beer too many and passed out. And he woke up about, about two hours later with very substantial frostbite to virtually his entire legs. And he came in, he was in a lot of pain, and then as we warmed him up, he had more pain. And it was, I used more morphine on that patient than I have in, in, in probably weeks combined on other patients just to keep them warm. He unfortunately lost both his feet in this, uh, uh, in this bad case. But he did, it was very clear how painful, not only the cold part is, but the warming up of it is. Um, tetanus, antibiotics for certain situations, there's some, there's some certainly debate on that. There's no evidence for heparin thrombolytics, hyperbarics, those types of things for frostbite injuries. And you talk about the old adage, frostbite in January, amputate in July. Certainly there are some situations where we know that ultimately amputation is going to be the case, but we don't necessarily do that right away. Trench foot is actually the most common cold-induced injury. It doesn't necessarily have to be cold. It's more long periods of time in the water. The military, again, has had an unfortunately extensive experience with this. It's numbness and pain, and as the foot is cool, they tend to do worse. Uh, erythematous, edematous, um, and the treatment is going to be bed rest, elevation, warming, and drying uh, in, in a, in, at room temperature, typically, is how we're going to manage these. So in terms of final thoughts for this, and then we'll take a quick break here, but if you don't think about it, you're going to miss hypothermia, and a lot of times it's because the body is showing you in sometimes subtle ways what's happening. Body is overwhelmed. How aggressive you are is going to depend on how sick the patient is. Medications really aren't helpful in most situations. Give fluids. Be careful with that, but certainly give fluids. You can cool fast, so it's different. Hyperthermia, we do want to cool very quickly, but we're going to warm slowly unless they're in true, truly critical situations, and re-exposure is bad across the board here. Don't give them up for dead. There's a lot of things we can do to assess patients. There have been some heroic returns on patients when, again, when there is some sign of life. And although I don't, we don't warm everybody up, we do tend to warm them up before we pronounce most patients. And again, teach prevention because this is where we stop it. And decision-making results in a lot of where patients, where they are when they have to come see us. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.